0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views, and updates in diabetes care. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today, we're covering the recent European Society of Cardiology Congress 2021, which took place from the 27th to the 30th of August. I spoke to two experts in cardiology and diabetes to discuss the developments from the Congress. You can find their disclosures and links to the data and guidelines we discussed in the episode notes. Firstly, I spoke to Professor Subod Verma, who's a cardiac surgeon scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and professor in the departments of surgery and pharmacology and toxicity at the University of Toronto in Canada. And he's held leadership roles in many global heart failure trials including the Emperor Reduced and Preserved trials, which we discuss here. Well, I'll just kick off with the first question then, which is on um, Emperor Preserved. I think it's fair to say that the results from the Emperor programme, probably the standout um, piece from this year's Congress. So as one of the PIs from Emperor Preserved, could you briefly explain what the key findings were?
1: Sure, um, so Emperor Preserved was a trial of patients with heart failure and a preserved ejection fraction. Uh, the population was defined as people who had an ejection fraction of over 40%, who had symptoms of heart failure. People with and without diabetes could be included. Patients were enrolled down to an EGFR of less than, uh, down to an EGFR of 20 mils per minute, per 1.73 meters square. These were patients who were also enriched uh, with BNP as an uh, nt BNP as an entry criteria, over 300 or 900, respectively, if patients had, were in sinus rhythm or had uh, atrial fibrillation. And there were also uh, some requirements for structural heart disease uh, you know, to be present prior to enrollment. So a population of patients with heart failure and a preserved ejection fraction carefully defined and carefully identified uh, a really broad representation of patients with hef uh, About 6,000 patients were randomized to receive empagliflozin 10 milligrams versus placebo. Uh, and the uh, follow-up was 26 months. The primary outcome was reduced by 21%, and that is the composite of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalizations, the first secondary outcome was released, was reduced by 29%. And that was the total heart failure hospitalizations. And then the second secondary outcome, which was the decline in EGFR slope was also favorably uh, uh, influenced with empagliflozin. So essentially in patients with heart failure and a preserved ejection fraction, the Emperor Preserved trial has demonstrated efficacy of empagliflozin on the primary and key secondary outcomes of the trial. It is the first trial to report an efficacy of any therapy to meet the primary endpoint in HEFPEF, which represents a, uh, a huge unmet clinical need uh, for patients uh, with heart failure. <clears throat> and it achieved this endpoint with really no significant uh, safety issues per se. Uh, the only imbalance was really with respect to genital infections and urinary tract infections, which uh, we have come to understand uh, is something that occurs with this class of medications.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And then following that, um, we saw results from the MPRA pooled analysis presented, um, which showed some differences in the benefit for renal outcomes, um, according to ejection fraction. So could this tell us something about um, the possible mechanism um, by which amperglobalosin offers cardio protection?
1: Right. So the, the pooled analysis was a very interesting, very important analysis for several reasons. One, it's um, an individual patient level pooled analysis of the two trials, M- emperor preserved and emperor reduced. So it's about 10,000 patients and it's individual patient level pooled analyses. It had its own statistical analyses plan, which predated any patients being randomized in the trial. So it was developed, um, you know, when the two trials were actually developed uh, early on, this was all pre-specified. And the pooled analyses gives us the opportunity to now look at the efficacy of empagliflozin across the spectrum of ejection fraction, but also for the primary outcome of the pooled analyses, which was the renal composite outcome. And then as you've alluded to, uh, some further post-hoc analyses as to whether ejection fraction modulates the renal efficacy. So first and foremost, we found in the pooled analyses that empagliflozin was highly consistently beneficial in patients across a broad range of ejection fraction from less than 25 All the way up to 64%. There was no decrement of the efficacy noted. It was about a 30% relative risk reduction for the primary outcome, for the key secondary outcome of total hospitalization. And that was entirely consistent and of a similar magnitude across this very broad ejection fraction. In patients who had an EF above 65% uh, in this uh, analysis, there seemed to be a neutral benefit of ambagliflozin in that population. And that requires, you know, further uh, sort of investigation and further thought, but it is important for your viewers to understand that the primary outcome uh, had predefined baseline subgroups of 40 to 50, 50 to 60, and more than 60%. And those three predefined um, ejection fraction subgroups really divided up the population into a thirds. Uh, So for those uh, predefined echo uh, sort of subgroups, there is no statistical heterogeneity per se. Now, moving on to the renal outcomes, which was the primary outcome in the emperor pooled, um, the renal outcomes in the emperor program are defined as a 40% sustained decrease in EGFR or a absolute decrease in GFR down to 10 to 15 mils per minute, or the need for renal replacement therapy, which is mostly dialysis. Now using that emperor definition, now different trials have used different definitions, but using that emperor uh, uh, renal composite definition, we did not find any improvement in renal function with Empagliflozin in this population, which was in contrast to what we found in the EMPEROR Reduced trial, which we published last year, where using the same composite, we actually found a 49% relative risk reduction with empagliflozin. And when you look at these data, uh, you wonder whether empagliflozin is not effective in HEFPEF, or is there something unique about HEFPEF with the pathophysiology being different? with respect to renal decline, or uh, is uh, there something uh, uh, sort of uh, inaccurate about the clinical composite that we're using to try to elucidate this outcome? So we asked the question as to whether uh, this would hold true if we used a more stringent uh, definition and a more widely acceptable accepted definition of renal decline, which is a 50% decline in EGFR, Uh, all of the other things we used in Emperor Preserved, and renal death. That's what was used in the DAPA-HF trial, and that was also used in the meta-analyses that was published recently. And when that definition is applied, you actually see that the hazard ratio is 0.52, which is entirely consistent with a renal protective benefit of. Empagliflozin, something that we have really come to understand through, you know, over ten randomized trials, that SGLT two inhibitors are highly effective renal protective agents. And I think what this tells me is that a more stringent definition of clinical outcomes is required to uncover uh, benefits of renal protective therapies, particularly therapies that may be associated with a decline in eGFR upfront like is the case with SGLT2 inhibitors. So when you do that type of analysis, the drop in EGFR that we found in emperor preserve that favored empagliflozin now uh, parallels what we see with the clinical outcome measure. Now, as you mentioned, there was some post hoc analyses to ask the question whether uh, this clinical endpoint also helped differentiate the renal protective efficacy of SGLT2 inhibitors across different injection fractions. And what was found in this post hoc analysis was that as ejection fraction increased, the renal benefit also seemed to decrease. Um, and therefore, there was sort of concordance between a decrement in benefit in patients above 60% from a heart failure perspective, as well as from a renal perspective. Does that inform us about potential mechanisms? I really don't think so, because uh, this is a very heterogeneous population, and HFPEF is a very heterogeneous population, and we still don't really know what the mechanistic underpinnings are. There have been so many hypotheses that have been put on the table, and it's likely multifactorial, and therefore this sub-analysis post hoc um, that was not predefined, I don't think in any way either sort of excludes a certain mechanism and neither does it in my mind negate the importance of the renal cardiac axis in the overall pathophysiology of heart failure with either a reduced or preserved ejection fraction. So uh, I don't think it tells us much mechanistically, but it certainly uh, may tell us that at patient may suggest as a hypothesis that patients who have Uh, Preserved ejection fractions may uh, respond uh, similarly with respect to their heart failure and renal benefits, and uh, we'll have to look into that in greater detail.
0: Great. So I guess it may have um, opened up more questions, or as many questions as it has answered, maybe. But are there any um, implications of these data specifically to consider when um, managing people with type 2 diabetes?
1: Right. So uh, patients with type 2 diabetes comprised about 50% of the population. And uh, there was no heterogeneity in the efficacy in people with and without diabetes. So essentially it was superimposable uh, point estimates, suggesting that people with diabetes and people without diabetes derive the same benefits of ampagliflozin in the context of HEF-PEF, and also in the context of hef as we've shown last year. And similar data have been seen with the DAPA-HF trial that Professor McMurray led uh, with dapagliflozin, similar benefits in people with and without diabetes. So what are the implications for people with diabetes? That if a patient with diabetes has heart failure, whether it is with a reduced or preserved ejection fraction, they should be treated with this agent for uh, improvements in outcome.
0: Great, thank you. So this is switching gears a little bit into another presentation that you gave, um, which is a post hoc analysis of sustained 6 and Pioneer-6 on uh, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios. Could you briefly explain what the potential clinical implications might be for that in the future?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, just switching gears completely, uh, inflammation, is very important in the pathophysiology of cardiovascular disease in general. Uh, And when it comes to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, inflammation has been suggested to play a primordial role in the uh, pathophysiology of atherosclerosis. It influences the natural history and the complications of atherosclerosis. So there's a lot of interest in Not only understanding the pathophysiology of inflammation, but also understanding whether inflammation is a potential target for pharmacotherapy. So there have been many biomarkers that people have tried to use to evaluate whether uh, inflammation correlates to outcomes and whether that can be a target for therapy. Some have been uh, measures such as high sensitivity CRP and others have been measures like VCAM and ICAM or IL-6, which are a bit more uh, complicated to measure. Some are sensitive, some are specific. Um, But the question is, is there any sort of simple biomarker that can be evaluated from baseline blood work that could give you a measure of uh, inflammation? And NLR, which stands for the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, uh, has actually emerged as a surrogate of systemic inflammation. And in some uh, very elegant work that has been led by Dr. Paul Ritger and others, uh, it has been shown that in patients with established cardiovascular disease, NLR helps identify people at higher risk of cardiovascular events, suggesting that this biomarker that can be, uh, you know, calculated by simple blood work, there's no other uh, blood draw required, there's no other fancy blood test needed, could be a measure of inflammation. Now, with that background, we know that in people with diabetes, inflammation plays a very important role in the pathophysiology of cardiovascular complications, but whether NLR uh, identifies people at higher risk has not yet been evaluated. So in the Sustained 6 and the PIONEER-6 trials, which are two large trials of semaglutide, Sustained 6 and Pioneer 6 both enrolled people with diabetes with either established cardiovascular disease or multiple CV risk factors. We pooled these two trials, and in this pooled data set, we evaluated the relationship between baseline NLR and cardiovascular outcomes. And what we found is that when we looked at NLR by tertiles, increasing tertiles were associated with an increasing Risk of cardiovascular events, the primary outcome, MACE, including CV death and all cause mortality. And that held true even after adjustment for age and sex and other uh, baseline demographic risk factors. Uh, While we have not yet evaluated uh, the efficacy of semaglutide as a function of different NLR tertiles per se, these data suggest that in people with diabetes, measures of inflammation such as NLR may help identify people at greater risk of, you know, either their first or recurrent cardiovascular event.
0: Next, I spoke with Professor Darren Maguire, who's Distinguished Teaching Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in the Division of Cardiology. And he has great expertise in large-scale cardiovascular outcomes trials with a focus in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Okay, so if I kick off with the first question, which is just asking you about your personal highlight um, from the Congress, what um, what stuck out to you?
2: I think two of the late breaking trials were of particular interest um, to the broad field of cardiology. One, of course, is the Emperor Preserved trial, which I know you'll be covering on a on a separate podcast. So I'll pick my second favorite uh, to talk about, which was, uh, which was the Figaro trial. The Figaro trial was a trial of patients with uh, diabetic kidney disease defined as a compromised EGFR um, with albuminuria, um, who were randomized on top of guideline-directed medical therapy, very well-treated um, diabetic kidney disease, were randomized to get finerenone versus placebo. This is the second similar trial in diabetic kidney disease with finerenone. the first one being Fidelio, which was reported last year and published. And both of these trials have a consistent message of a statistically significant reduction in cardiovascular events. And specifically in Figaro, it was the composite of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, and hospitalization for heart failure. And that composite outcome was driven almost completely by hospitalization for heart failure reductions. There was a 29% relative risk reduction in hospitalization for heart failure, and in the overall composite, there was a 13% relative risk reduction, both of which were statistically significant. So we have yet another drug in patients with diabetes and advanced target organ damage, in this case represented by kidney disease, um, where we have incremental clinical gains on top of the very best medical therapy. We have to offer. So, adding to our arsenal now will be finerenone, not necessarily targeting the kidney disease as much as targeting the cardiovascular outcomes. The FideliO trial had kidney disease outcome as the primary outcome, and that was statistically significantly superior with finerenone. And on that basis, finerenone in the U.S. has a product labeled indication now for diabetic kidney disease with albuminuria to prevent progression of kidney disease as well as reduce risk for cardiovascular disease. And the Figaro results largely support that. Um, The one caveat is in Figaro, the composite outcome, the primary kidney disease composite outcome, barely missed statistical significance. But when combined with the data from Fidelio, the totality of the evidence is a modest reduction um, in progression of kidney
0: disease as well. Great. Thank you. Um, Moving on, I know there were a few new guidelines that were announced during the Congress, um, one of which was a new... Uh, updated heart failure guidelines. Um, so will these change anything about how we treat people with diabetes who also have heart failure?
2: Right. So the heart failure guideline um, just goes one step further to um, unequivocally endorse the use of SGLT2 inhibitors um, in, in uh, patients with or at risk for heart failure. So for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, there's now a level 1A indication for the use of dapagliflozin or empagliflozin for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And that indication is independent of diabetes status. And so while it does affect patients with diabetes and reduced ejection fraction heart failure, it's exactly the same indication in the absence of diabetes. And so we now have a fourth pillar of medical-based heart failure with reduced ejection fraction care with the same level of evidence and recommendation as the ACE and Arnes, mineralocorticoid antagonists, antagonist and beta blockers. When it comes to preventing heart failure in high risk patients, um, there's a, now a level one A indication, and this is a change from the previous guideline. Um, in the prior guideline in 2016, empagliflozin was endorsed uniquely because that's all the data that were available at the time, and it was a two A indication. So um, now that's been raised to a level one A indication, and the guideline endorses all five of the SGLT inhibitors, including, interestingly. Sotagliflozin. So sodicliflozin is not even on the market or approved for type 2 diabetes, yet it's endorsed in the guideline based on the results of the soloist and scored randomized trials. Sotagliflozin is a dual SGLT1-2 antagonist. And it's not on the market because of uh, business decisions made by Sanofi um, to halt production. Um, the, the compound has now been proven effective and is there is some action moving forward for regulatory submission. So we'll see what happens with Um, It's our hope that a, another company may pick up the drug. It looks quite similar to or maybe even better than the SGLT2 inhibitors. And so we really don't want to lose this compound now that we've made this much progress. But in addition to sodagliflozin now, to prevent heart failure, hospitalization in patients with type 2 diabetes with or at high risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The guidelines endorse impigliflozin, dapigliflozin, canicliflozin, air 2 and also, as I mentioned, sodagliflozin. So we have lots of options, and I think that benefits the patients. Now that we have multiple options endorsed, there will be some competition in the marketplace, and ideally, we may see the prices uh, drop in that competition, making it more accessible and affordable to the patients.
0: Great. And then looking at another guideline, which was announced, which is the cardiovascular disease prevention guideline. Um, In particular, there's now a stepwise treatment intensification approach recommended. Um, What do you think this means in practice, again, for managing diabetes?
2: I think the stepwise idea is something that we do naturally in the clinic. We don't try to tackle all problems maximally at one time. And so um, I think patients respond well to um, making smaller changes and doing it incrementally. Um, But the important thing in the stepwise progression is don't stop after the first or second step. Continue um, tweaking the therapy until you get all the targets modifiable, modified to the optimal um, level, Um, either to the target of each guide of each uh, target. I mean, get to the therapeutic target for things like blood pressure and lipids. Um, in glucose, but also um, to the maximum tolerability of the patient is oftentimes these take many medications and many of them need to be titrated. And so it's a partnership with the patient. And I think in the guideline, they speak a fair amount about shared decision-making, but it's, I like to think about it more as a partnership and an ongoing negotiation about um, how can we make things better and should we try. And the guidelines, um, pretty much recapitulate the ESC guidelines for the treatment of type 2 diabetes when it comes to the recommendations for antihyperglycemic therapies, preferentially endorsing SGLT2 inhibitor and or a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven benefits um, to be used as first line or second line to metformin um, if the patient's already on metformin um, for patients with ASCVD or multiple risk factors. And so those guidelines, those recommendations stand and are unchanged from the prior ESC guideline for type 2 diabetes.
0: Great. And then finally, I know you took part in a live session on cardiorenal pharmacotherapy for diabetes. And there was quite a lot of discussion about, well, the main question was, should all people with diabetes be treated with SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists? So looking at back two years ago when the ESC first um, recommended that um, these be given as first-line therapy over metformin for, for most patients. Do you think we're now any closer to a consensus on this after all the controversy that that kicked off?
2: I don't think so, honestly. I think the controversy stands. I think it's a little bit of a straw person. Um, it, it's controversy where there doesn't need to be controversy. Um, I understand the endocrinologist's perspective. Metformin is a well-loved drug. It's widely available. It's cheap. Um, Very few side effects. But the reality, it doesn't have the evidence basis that the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists have in the high-risk patient populations now with clinical outcomes evidence. And the problem we get into, at least in the United States, is when there's guidelines recommending metformin first, then we get third-party payers denying prescriptions for the SGLT2 inhibitors or the GLP-1 receptor agonist if the patient isn't already on, a met, on metformin. And so um, we have financial obstacles because of that discord in the guidelines. And I don't think that does the patient's justice. And so I think we shouldn't care whether metformin's first or not. It's a very good drug. If patients are on metformin, we can add to it. But if they can get to their therapeutic targets for glucose without metformin, um, and we have several patients who can on an SGLT2 inhibitor and or a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and if we can achieve our targets with one or two therapies, we don't necessarily need the third one. Um, And that's kind of the argument. I I think metformin should stay near the top. Um, And again, we, we don't mind that it's on and we add to it when it's there, but we don't necessarily need to use it for all patients. And then the overarching question of the, of the session was, should all patients be treated with one or both of these novel therapeutic classes? <clears throat> and the reality is not everybody should be. Of course, type 1 diabetes isn't part of this discussion. So the entire session was about type 2 diabetes. And then there are patients with very early onset or very low comorbidities who have type 2 diabetes, especially at least in the states where we now have adolescents with type 2 diabetes. They can probably get by without the um, without the SGLT2 inhibitors or the GLP1 receptor agonist in that primary prevention, very low risk uh, condition, and that comes down to a cost consideration. These are very expensive medications, and anticipating a lifetime of the therapies, uh, or especially uh, or until they become generic, it it is an expensive proposition for a lot of patients, and so we can often get by with some cheaper um, therapies that as long as we can avoid hypoglycemia. And we want to, of course, avoid weight gain as well.
0: This brings us to the end of the episode. For further reading, you can find links to the discussed abstracts and publications in the episode notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review or rating to help other people find the podcast or recommend us to your colleagues. Join us again for the next episode, when we'll be joined by Professor William Alazawi to discuss non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in high-risk populations.